Intercontinental Tournament could become Intercontinental Champion. I agree with that because you don't have anybody in it, Ray. Well, that's because of Jack Cunningham. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, greetings from Allentown is not taped in front of a live studio audience. everyone and welcome to episode 184 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host Peter Winston and today I'm going to do a WWF wrestling challenge because it's been a long time. I looked it up. It was episode 161 and that was wrestling challenge from 1994. So it's time to do a proper one from 1990 which seems to be a very popular year with the listenership at least according to the pod track metrics which I can only assume are true. For some reason, the, the episodes that I've done from 1990, I don't know, pe- people seem to like them a lot more. Uh, maybe it's because they had, like, Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels and some other stuff in it. But anyway, my reason for picking this show is something completely unprecedented in the history of Gritty of Allentown. I'm doing this one because I am annoyed by the thumbnail on the YouTube video, and I am tired of... My upcoming podcast thing, scrolling past it and seeing the man's annoying face on there. And it's not even a wrestler who's on the show. It is a guy in the crowd, and he, he just bothers me. So I just want to get this the hell over with. Even though I'm going to be repeating something that I did on GFA Live with Keithy a couple of months ago when we covered the Intercontinental Title Tournament from 1990 because we have one of the matches on this show. But before I get into all that, why don't I get in my plugs? You can email show greetingsmountown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash blah, blah, blah. And on Twitter at GF Allentown pod, that is at GF Allentown pod. Now it's, I don't know, everything just feels so weird right now because it is, it's September as this is released. I guess technically as I'm talking, I'll break kayfabe. It's August 31st. And I am watching the hockey playoffs, which I still can't get that through my head. Now, my team is extremely likely. The Bruins will probably be eliminated, perhaps by the time I finish this intro, but perhaps by the time this show is released. They'd have to lose in five or six games in order for that to happen. And everything just feels off. And I'm not talking about the Bruins' play in this series. It's It's just the fact that it's... Freaking August 31st, and I'm watching hockey. The fact that baseball had their trade deadline earlier today, and it's 35 games into the season. It's like, why the hell do the Miami Marlins think that they're buyers or whatever? Of course, the Mets are buyers because they, they, they always think that they're in it for whatever reason because they're completely insane. For hockey, I just miss going to the games. Park has some, apparently, August 31st, an Armageddon day for restaurants in the city of Boston. Now, I don't want to make things too local on this show, but it is kind of heartbreaking that the Fours, which I didn't get to go to that much, it's across the street from TD Garden, 
is closing as of today, the 31st. And th- it was generally regarded as one of the best sports bars in America. And you wonder, well, how, how could this happen? Well, the last six months have happened and, you know, it's, it's just kind of a fact of life. But I think part of it is inflated rents in Boston and commercial. I don't want to make this whole intro about commercial real estate, but I think a reckoning is coming when it comes to office space. I'm not talking about the movie. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Uh, we have sort of a problem here. I just get the sense that there's not going to be the same demand for office space. I mean, I don't even know if my own office is ever going to reopen because there's no plan to ever go ahead and do that. Now, I know Massachusetts has been slow playing the hand relative to some other states, and and I'm okay with that. But in terms of commercial real estate, I, I don't I don't know where it's going to go or how how it's going to recover from this. I think suburbs might actually benefit suburban office space because you can actually drive to it and you don't have to take public transportation. On the flip side, though, you want you attract people to cities and, you know, you can get people through, you know, public transit into a place like Boston, Chicago. So to answer your question that I posed myself, I really don't know. It's a very confusing time in life where <laughs> I saw this thing today that Ron Jeremy is apparently like a horrible, horrible sex offender if all of these things are true. Now, you think that the guy would have you know, jizzed himself out years ago, <laughs> but sadly, that is not the case. So now we're going to be in a situation where all these old porn movies with Ron Jeremy are going to have to be reworked in like the same way that WWE did after the Chris Benoit thing where Ron Jeremy is just going to have to be completely written out of it. Like, the description is going to be like WrestleMania 20. It would be like, Jenna Jameson and Christy Canyon get together for a threesome without mentioning who the other person is. It would be like the main event of WrestleMania 20, like I just said. But, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling a particular malaise, which is why I had to pick myself up with that very, very body joke. Now, this show right here is in what I like to call a WWF malaise period. And maybe it's just kind of natural coming off the biggest show of the year. But out of the first eight WrestleManias, I would, I would identify four of those years. You had a definite period where there was, there was a bit of a lull afterwards. And it was for various reasons too. 86 after WrestleMania 2, a lot of people were going out the door at that point. Piper wasn't there anymore. Ventura wasn't there. You had this revolving door on All-Star Wrestling in the color commentary spot. 87, I think it's more of a, there were a lot of people at the Pontiac Silverdome. I don't know if you've heard, but, you know, people talk about the attendance of that show. And coming off that, well, how exactly are you going to top that? Well, you know, of course there's going to be a bit of a dip. 1990, we're talking about here, you, you had, you know, a great WrestleMania in the Sky Dome and the change over from Hulk Hogan to the Ultimate Warrior as the top guy. And then, of course, 1992, WrestleMania 8, things real, the, the bottom starts to fall out after WrestleMania 8 from a business perspective. And Hogan's gone, Sid's gone, Piper's gone, you know, a lot, a lot of the tippy top guys. I mean, that's, three out of the top five to eight guys in the WWF at this time. But here it's changing over from Hogan to Warrior, which for, you know, we can all agree 30 years later that it did not click the way they wanted it to. And I can speak to that personally because 
I have said this probably 3,000 times on this podcast. I never really connected with the Ultimate Warrior in any sort of way the way I did with Hulk Hogan. That's just, that's just the way that it was. But Hogan, Hogan's about to drop off the map too because the earthquake attack, which you'd think I would do that show at some point, but I'm just, I'm just kind of holding off, holding off. Besides, it's not on YouTube. Although th- this thing is on YouTube and it doesn't have any freaking comments when I checked earlier, which just absolutely floored me because it's been on there for a very long time because I've had to stare at that stupid guy who's plugging his ears during the genius poem. So 90 might be more interesting than those other years, 86, 87, even though I did one from 87 fairly recently, the Patera-Heenan debate. And it's certainly more interesting than 92. Well, it depends how much you're into Papa Shango, I guess. But so I guess this would be the best of the worst. So so it seems I was out in the summer of 90. Like I I was not really watching during this period of time. And from that point of view, I like going back and watching these shows because it's like, okay, yeah, I don't have the childhood memory of seeing it in the moment in 1990. But it's still all the familiar faces. It's not like 1992 where there's a huge changeover in what's happening. Plus, it's it's Bobby Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon, for God's sakes. And there's actually a feature match with named guys on this show from the Intercontinental Title Tournament. Rowdy Roddy Piper against the model Rick Martel. And kind of interesting. I'll get into this more later. Seeing Piper on Wrestling Challenge, although apparently it was not as rare as I thought it was. And also the show, Demolition... And they're in that in-between period between WrestleMania 6 when they get the monster pop for their victory over the Colossal Connection and when Crush joins the team a little bit later and their heel turn kind of slowly starts up. Jimmy Snuka, the genius, is in action. Now, I mean, if there's any reason for me to do this. Now, as I said, his him reading the poem is causing the guy to plug his ears but how many Genius Lady Poffo matches are there on WWF television? There's really not a lot of them. I mean, you remember the one with Hogan on Saturday Night's Main Event and the tag match with Perfect. But other than that, I mean, you, you do not see him very often because he's a manager for Perfect for much of late 89 and early 90. Now, this was taped at the Freeman Coliseum in San Antonio, Texas, which if that sounds familiar... That is where this Tuesday in Texas was held just over a year, well, I guess more like a year and a half later. Taped April 24th, 1990. So it was literally a Tuesday in Texas that this was taped on. Now you're probably like, hey, Winston, how the hell do you know that April 24th was on a Tuesday? I I just know. I remember my 11th birthday was on a Saturday, and it's the 28th, and I, I, I could do the math from there. It's, it's not hard. It's not like doing a, a Sudoku puzzle on Expert. I mean, I, I catch a lot of crap for, for knowing the count. Cal- the calendar goes in 28-year cycles. It's really not that hard to figure out. But anyway, some interesting things on the dark match scene at the Freeman Coliseum. Dustin Rhodes, his first ever match in the World Wrestling Federation, a victory over Black Bart. I would slowly ramp him up before they would put him on television in the fall. Hulk Hogan defeated Earthquake by disqualification. Now, you'd think that maybe Earthquake would be more of a challenger for the Ultimate Warrior, but nope, Earthquake's going to go to Hogan, and that attack on the Brother Love Show happens on the May 26th Superstar, so that's still a couple of weeks away. 
match, a bunch of matches were taped for primetime wrestling, including this rather interesting one that if it had happened two years later, it would have been the battle for Sherry. <laughs> I'm not talking about an alcoholic beverage. I'm talking sensational Sherry because there's Shawn Michaels still in the rockers, of course, versus Ted DiBiase. And that made Coliseum videos hottest matches. That's not something that I remember on Coliseum video, but I don't know how much I was renting VHS tapes by the time that would have come out. And this is the first show of the challenge taping, so that there is some space between when it's taped and when it airs, almost three weeks, but I don't think it feels particularly stale at all, with the exception of the, there's one little anecdote about the Piper Martell match that is kind of funny that I, I believe I mentioned on the GFA Live when we were doing the Intercontinental Title Tournament, but I'll get into it again when we get to that match. So might as well hit the go button for WWF Wrestling Challenge for May 13th, 1990. Well, since I went to the Saved by the Bell bumper system, I was kind of hoping that there would be an episode on this weekend, but apparently there's not because... In 1990, their season didn't start until September, and they ran to just before Christmas. And in 89, they ended up right before Christmas as well. So there's a long gap, and I don't really remember that. I just remember it being on TBS all the time. And now apparently there's going to be some sort of revival show that I know I'm supposed to be excited for, but I'm still probably not going to watch it. Although at the very least, Cobra Kai now being on Netflix makes it much more accessible to me, by which I mean it's actually on a platform that I subscribe to. So Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby the Brain Heenan are the hosts. We do not have a third man in the booth at this time. And with it being May 13th, it is Sunday. It is Mother's Day, which means Heenan's going to go back to the old standbys. See, I thought Heenan was going to do the bit where his mother didn't get him enough presents for Mother's Day. Because I know he did that one in other years, but instead he's like, oh, she stiffed me at Christmas, so I'm going to pay her back at Mother's Day. So I guess changing it up for the even-numbered years, I would imagine. But we immediately go to a clip from that week's superstars of wrestling, which would be the Dino Bravo versus Brutus Beefcake match from the Intercontinental Title Tournament. See, they still got to air that thing out from that whole Dream Team thing back at WrestleMania 3. That's still lingering three years later, so that's why they get paired up in the first round. I mean, my commentary on the Intercontinental Title Tournament is it was done so randomly and without any regard to seeding. Like, it, it's a tournament where it's just sort of names just sort of thrown in there, but always having heel face, heel face in all the matchups. But it's a an eight-man tournament that features exactly <laughs> exactly five matches because two of the matches well, I don't I don't want to spoil the Piper Martel match if you don't know what happens, but two guys win in the first round and then immediately go to the finals and meet on superstars, which would actually be the week after this. Now how how does this match end with Bravo and Beefcake? Because that's all we see is Mr. Perfect shows up at ringside. Beefcake had gotten the sleeper on Bravo. Beefcake ends up near the ropes. Jimmy Hart's on the apron. So Perfect grabs the leg, drags Beefcake outside. They start slugging it out. Bravo goes out there to join them, and they're kind of battling 
Bravo and Beefcake. And eventually, it looks like Beefcake's going to get back in the ring. He gets halfway there. He gets pulled out. But does, the referee does not reset the count. And then Bravo dives in at like 9.75 for the referee's 10 count. But, of course, with it being Earl Hebner, it's not soon enough. So it the, the match is a double count out. And once again, Dino Bravo getting some super protection that is actually not by the Quebec Mafia in this case. Like what, what it, Jesse was so incredulous about, about the call by the referee. It, it almost sounds like me complaining about a, a missed tripping call in hockey. Well, we go from Beefcake Baba to a man who met the shears of a different barber, Joe LaDuke, out in Memphis in 1986, Paul Diamond, taking on Superfly Jimmy Snooker. I love how I'm portraying it like Paul Diamond is the star here. But I have to say, his mullet grew back pretty good in the four years since Joe LaDuke did a number on him. And this is only the second day on the job for Paul Diamond in the World Wrestling Federation. He was in the AWA as part of Bad Company with Pat Tanaka, but Tanaka, he's long gone. He's he's in the Orient Express in the WWF for a while. So finally, Diamond gets his life wrath. He worked the Superstars taping the day before this. One dark match that he won in singles competition, and then one tag match where he was teamed up with an enhancement talent. I'm assuming the other guy ate the pin against the Hart Foundation. It's not until after the Survivor Series that he then dons the masks and get to become known as Kato, as Lord Alfred Hayes would call him. So I guess he was turning Japanese as he, I guess he's getting the vapors. Come on, pal. And anyway, Diamond is looking very, very Dave Meltzer-esque with his hair going on here. I mean, he's, he's tripping like Willie Ames out there from Charles in Charge, as Gorilla says that the brain had the brain had parents at the Alamo, and Heenan's just like, nah. It's like a reminder that Gorilla and Heenan, while they're funny together, they're not going to hit a home run every time up. Sometimes Gorilla's going to ground out the second base, you know, setting up Heenan for a joke. As you know, it wasn't a particularly good one. I've been to the Alamo. It's fine. I didn't really get a sense that it was like this hugely historic. I didn't really feel like an aura. When I was when I was in there, and I, I, maybe it was because it was friggin' ninety nine degrees Fahrenheit that day, and I was just sweltering and dying. Now Snooker, when he was on his way out to the ring, I noticed in the aisle he had like this sort of singlet dealy where he had one strap over the shoulder, almost like he was a Flintstones character, but. That was actually just a garment going over the top. So he takes that off and he's back to the regular trunks. Because I had thought at WrestleMania 6 he had gotten shamed out of it by Steve Allen ruthlessly making fun of it. Like, oh, I think that's my wife's underwear. And Steve Allen's batting average at WrestleMania 6 was very, very high. I think he had like a four for four night between that, the Bolsheviks in the shower, and all the rest. So immediately, Snooker does the double leapfrog spot where it's frontwards and then Diamond, you know, he, he he doesn't see Diamond coming, but is still able to leapfrog him and then hits the reverse knife edge, as Gorilla calls it. And I'm wondering, what's the difference between that and a chop? I guess a chop would be more of like an open hand where you hit him with the palm, whereas a reverse knife edge would be you hit him with the side of the hand. 
I, I never really put much thought to that until right now. 184 freaking episodes, and I have not once given thought to the reverse knife edge versus, I think I've just called it a chop all along. As Heenan discusses a new family member coming, but he's very, very circumspect about the whole thing. Of course, that would be Mr. Perfect, but we're, we're holding off on, until the next week's superstars. And I'm still mad that Perfect wasn't put with him the entire time that he was there because that was a team that should, we, we should have gotten more of that. We should have gotten more event centers of those two guys talking, more of the towel, you know, throwing it up in the air and Heenan catching it without looking. As Diamond tries that same double leapfrog spot, and Snooker's like, not today, brother. And Snooker is actually waiting on the second leap. So <laughs> the brain, despite Snooker showing some intelligence there in the ring, of course he's got to get in the typical heel derogatory remark towards him. Superfly with that mastery of the martial arts. Hey. He is in great physical condition, you got to say that to the dummy. I thought to myself, who the hell doesn't like popcorn? And then I remembered, oh yeah, heels. Heels aren't allowed to like popcorn. That must be one of those old kayfabe things that I must have forgotten about at some point along the line. Diamond goes to the eyes to regain some semblance of control and, and then hits a back elbow, kind of the old blackjack mulligan flying through the air one, or Jacques Rougeau, depending on what you prefer. As Howard Finkel fills us in on the upcoming Worcester Centrum show on the voiceover. Oh, don't worry. We'll be getting more on that because all the event centers are for the Worcester Centrum, which I don't remember as much getting plugged as the Boston Garden ones. But, hey, I'll take it because we got some very, very different promo guys on this one. As a slam by Snooker as he was able to turn the tide when Finkel was talking and then hits the kind of a leaping headbutt, not like off the ropes, but, you know, just sort of running through the air. Maybe sending a message to the barbarian who he's feuding with at this point on house shows in a battle of the Islanders, I guess. Although the barbarian, they never really played up his Samoan roots until he's in the head shrinkers as Sioni. But, you know, he is from Samoa and... Snuka is from Fiji, so you you have that whole thing going on. At least they didn't do the cliched mutual respect tag team at the end of it, which I know I shouldn't make fun of because that's how Cesaro and Sheamus started up in like 2016 or whenever it was and formed the bar, and they, they were they were one of the few bright spots for many years of the WWE, in at least in the last five years for me. And Snooker does go up, he hits the splash. Yes, he's doing that all the time, whereas back in his first run, he would sometimes just do the headbutt on TV. You gotta come to the house shows, pal, if you want to see the splash. And gotta say, for all that I've said about Jimmy Snooker and the fact that, well, you know, perhaps criminal charges should have been brought against him, those camera bulbs, because, you know, there's no camera phones in 1990, they're going off when he's in the middle of the, in, in midair. Like, you could tell, back in those days, you could tell a big moment by, like, the number of flash bulbs that you see. Like, I remember Cal Ripken's 2,131st consecutive game. Like, all the flash bulbs when he's up at bat. I mean, it had to have been incredibly distracting. But when Jimmy Snooker would do that move, he's still getting that. Even 1990 Jimmy Snooker. From Coliseum Video, exclusive distributors of WrestleMania 6. Hello everyone, I'm Lord Alfred Hayes. Last week on Wrestling Challenge, 
we saw the Hart Foundation take on the Bolsheviks in a return tag team match from WrestleMania 6. Pardon me for being cynical here, but why was it even necessary? They lost in like 15 seconds at WrestleMania. Oh, oh, they weren't ready at the time? E- even still, all right? Let's, like I said with Nikita Koloff, it was long past time to get out of the Soviet heel business because at least there was a rapprochement between the Soviet Union and the United States at this time. Bush and Gorbachev had a, a very, very friendly relationship. They went on a freaking ship in, well, I guess it wasn't a ship. It was more of a small boat off of Malta, for God's sakes. I mean, come on. U.S. and Soviet leaders are going out like onto the high seas. That would not have happened in the 70s. Not even, not even with Nixon and, and, and Brezhnev, you know, that, that, that sex pot that he was. But what was funny was after that match with the Hart Foundation, the Bolsheviks start bickering with each other. But the reaction of Boris Zukov during it, uh, you know, say what you will about Jim Nelson as a performer. He, as I said, as I always take great pains to point out, he's a very nice man, apparently. And maybe not the greatest professional wrestler, but I love his little nod to history when he's fighting Nikita Kol- Nikita Kol- Nikolai Volkov after this match that they lost to the Hearts. They're the only friends they've got. They can't afford to fight each other. Boris taking off his boots. Bruce did that years ago. The Nikita Khrushchev shoe banging incident took place on October 12th, 1960 at the United Nations plenary meeting, the General Assembly, which now that I think of it, this episode of Challenge is closer in time to the shoe banging incident than it is to the current day. It's not one of those things. I don't know why I think about it. But it was in protest of a speech made by a delegate from the Philippines, which uh, I was I was not expecting. I, I I could not remember the exact circumstances, but the delegate said it referred to the peoples of Eastern Europe and elsewhere, which have been deprived of the free exercise of their civil and political rights, and which have been swallowed up, so to speak, by the Soviet Union. And Khrushchev came to the. Rustum or whatever and, and brandished a shoe. There's debate about whether he hit it on the, on the desk. There are some, you know, accounts that say that he did, some that say that he didn't. But I enjoyed that Boris Zukov took off his boot and attempt, attempted to, I don't know, make, make some sort of hay with it. I mean, are they done as a tag team? Well, Slick is done with them. He, he's, he's nowhere to be found during this. Although now that I think about it, I think when Nikolai Volkov disappears for much of 1989 and they reunite towards the end of the year, I don't think Slick is there for the second go-round. So they, they do not break up, even though they're, they're at war with each other after this match. They, they still got one more the following week. I want to put a stop to all the rumors. There are problems with the Bolsheviks. We have no problems. We are the number one team in the World Wrestling Federation. Russia, number one. They face the Rockers on the May 19th Superstars, and the split occurs after that, and eventually it moves along to Nikolai Volkov becoming the All-American boy, but not in the way that Jacques Rougeau was. They're actually celebrating it in this case. And they have their match, Boris versus Nikolai, at a certain point. But yeah, you can tell it's the B-show when we're talking about the freaking Bolsheviks and their dissolution. And I'm just going to make the point where I said this on the podcast a few weeks ago where I referred to the movie Death of Stalin, which is on Netflix. You have to watch that movie. It's a dark, very, very dark comedy. 
but it is pretty freaking hilarious. I mean, Steve Buscemi plays Khrushchev in that one. I mean, what the hell do you people want? I mentioned this earlier. It's a little strange having the genius Lanny Poffo on the Saturday morning syndicated shows. I mean, you, you didn't really see this very often. He's still coming out to no music. He's not managing Mr. Perfect anymore. I mean, how many TV matches did this guy have? I mean, it's funny because the first one you think of is the Saturday Night's main event with Hogan in November of 89. But it's like genius Lanny Poffo outside of that. It's like, okay, outside of the NBC television network, how many matches with him in it do you actually remember? I mean, like 86, 87, that whole thing. You know, he's kind of the upper-level jobber who tosses the frisbee out to the crowd. Here, I mean, yeah, he's he's doing the managing thing, but once that's over with Perfect, which is pretty much at this point, because Perfect will be, you know, handed over to Heenan on the following week's Superstars, how many times do we actually see him in a match? Okay, in 1990, you have the Saturday Night's Main Event in January. That was, the, that was filmed before the Royal Rumble, but aired after where he's teaming with Mr. Perfect against Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. Royal Rumble against Brutus the Barber Beefcake, which I think is a double disqualification, oddly enough, even though Poffo ends up getting his hair cut. Then you have this match. So this is the first one on TV of any kind since <laughs> since the middle of January, since the end of January, I guess it would be the Saturday Night's main event. Sorry, it's a, it's a mind screw with the way they filmed that, like at the beginning of January and then aired at the end after the Rumble. He picks up a win after this. You, you get this match, of course, and then the July 16th primetime wrestling, and then a loss to Jib Duggan on the September 17th primetime wrestling. So these are some pretty big gaps. You go two months without any Lanny Poffo. And then two and a half months after that, a loss to Dustin Rhodes on the December 2nd episode of Wrestling Challenge. So his poetry, I, I talked about how when he became the genius in the early spring of 1989, his poetry was going to be better because he had more time to actually write things out. It's not like he was trying to produce 38 episodes at Gilligan's Island, which was the very weird example that I came up with. So I wonder... Now, with Perfect no longer in the picture for him, is is his poetry even getting better here in 1990? Well, he forgot his earrings. He usually wears earrings, doesn't he? I saw him in the locker room. His earrings. I don't know anything about that. Beauty of the genius is quite pleasing to the eye. My poetry is pleasing to the ear. If Brutus Beefcake's jealousy can't handle such intelligence, forgive me if I fail to shed a tear. And the world's smartest man, I wouldn't be where I am at today. A warning to the barber or to whom it may concern. I'll leave you in a state of disarray. Boy, I'll give you a little wink, man, son. Boy, is he gone, Seems to have a little bit more oomph to it than his babyface poetry. I think all the best poets were heels when you really think about it. Bukowski, I mean, the, the list probably goes along. I know Whitman, he, he probably went back and forth between being a heel and a face. He's kind of like the Lex Luger of his time <laughs> or, the, or the big show. But what's funny is, by the way, the, the man from the thumbnail and the YouTube video shows up, the one that I decried a few days ago on Twitter, who kind of looks like a, <laughs> a cross between 
Adam Richman from Man vs. Food. I, these are, I know these are very esoteric references. But you know, the guy from Man vs. Food from years ago and Max Greenfield as Schmidt from The New Girl when he was wearing the fat suit to portray his young, the character's younger self. And he's just got his fingers in his ear and it looks like he's wearing a referee shirt. <laughs> it's like a black and white striped shirt. But what's great is Gorilla gets all pissed off here. Because after listening to Lanny's poetry for th- some 35, 40 seconds, he, the genius also gets the inset promo as well because, well, he's got a feud with Beefcake, but they're not going to make Beefcake do an inset promo to talk about the genius because he's moved on to Mr. Perfect. We listened to the poem. Now we got to have more words from this guy. Give me a break. I've had enough of the genius. Be quiet. See the beauty of the genius and the world's smartest man. Judas Beefcake, you just couldn't hurt my head. I realize that beauty lies in eyes of the beholder. Judas Beefcake, you just didn't get your share. Well, you'll never get your share. I understand he's got a truckload of those wigs. I'm not sure it's wigs. You're not, huh? I think he's got a Dalai Lama that's putting on some secret oil that he can grow hair overnight. Are you See, I was a little confused because I thought that that feud was over. But honestly, you got to have something for Beefcake to do in the meantime before he moves on to perfect. You're not going to have three months of house shows and then have the SummerSlam match with Beefcake and perfect. So it runs to the end of May where the genius is losing to Brutus Beefcake on house shows. The genius was, was a busy man in 1990. Despite the fact that you never saw him on TV, he was working on pretty much every house show. And on every house show in the summertime, he's losing to Coco Beware, which sounds like perfectly acceptable opening match fodder for the World Wrestling Federation of the time period. And then later on, he's he's losing to he's losing to Jim Brunzel in the fall, but but it's most mostly Coco with with a few other guys sprinkled in. There's a Hercules, you know, in one spot, and a couple of other guys as well. His record. He's one of those guys where even though he he's a name guy and obviously he's going to pick up a victory here over Dale Wolf. Oh, I know I don't want to spoil it for you or anything. He he has 107 cage match matches and 21 wins, 85 losses, and one draw. I don't know I don't know who Lanny Poffo was facing for a draw. I guess they must be counting the double DQ against Beefcake at the Royal Rumble. Now he's doing his tiptoe through the tulips routine the tiny tim nonsense and, and then does the somersault thing or backflip or cartwheel he's doing all the gymnastics stuff he does a cartwheel very very slowly gorilla points that out and i i, I never quite noticed that maybe, maybe that's the thing that i always think is off with lanny poffo as dale dale wolf tries for the wig he tries to grab it off his head and fails as howard finkel with the voiceover talks about the upcoming Boston Garden House show on June the 2nd, which is headlined by the Ultimate Warrior against Ravishing Rick Rude. You're talk about uh, house you know, programs that had been done before that maybe didn't do the Warrior any favors. But the opening match of the Boston Garden that night, of course, it was Coco Beware versus the Genius. By the way, your semi-main, if you're counting the next-to-last matches, that was the Brooklyn Brawler defeating Jim Brunsell. It only drew about 6,000 to the Boston Garden. But I have to remind you, you know, air conditioning, very important. I know June 2nd it might have been a little bit, you know, cooler, maybe not quite like 90 degrees or anything. But it would get really, really hot in that building as the 1984 Lakers 
learned <laughs> big time in game five of that series. Running drop kick by Lanny, genius, and he does a backflip for good measure. I noticed that on his trunks, the word genius is spelled across his ass, and it's done in the exact same font as his brother's old Macho Man type. So uh, apparently they went to the same place for this. And I may, I don't know, maybe Randy resigned the account and Lanny took it over. I, I'm not sure how that goes, but a slam and then the genius Lanny Poffo version of the moonsault, which I don't know why he does this, probably because he can, where he'd have one foot on the top rope, one foot on the second rope, and then his cock would be on the bottom rope. I'm just kidding. That's, that's the normal Lanny Poffo fodder that I always, uh, talk about. He pulls the man up at two. Because, you know, that, that, that's a, that's a heel move and we have to be reminded that that's what Lanny Poffo is. He goes up top again and hits his somersault senton, which he was doing in 1986 as a face. And it looks like he did Dale Wolf no favors on that one. Could have caved the dude's stomach in. But instead afterwards, you know, after he picks up the pitfall win, he's prancing around, mincing around. And I don't know if that's the reason why you never really saw him on television, but honestly, He's, he's so different from everybody else that you, maybe it's just to make everything he does stand out a little bit more. He's like the Brock Lesnar of his time. The genius can only be used on television five times a year. Of course, Brock Lesnar is apparently now a free agent. I don't know what's going to come of that, but honestly, <laughs> I respect Brock Lesnar because he does whatever the hell he wants when he wants to do it. Lanny Poffo, on the other hand, well, he's not on TV that much, but he's getting worked a bone on house shows against Coco Beware. Hello, everyone. I'm Sean Mooney. Happy Mother's Day weekend. What a great way to celebrate. Then by taking Mom and the rest of the family to catch all the action live this Friday evening, May 18th at the Worcester Centrum. I'm going to go ahead, Mooney, and just be brutally honest here. I don't think my mother, or any other mother for that matter, is that stupid to want to go to was probably a C-show at best at the Worcester Centrum. Yeah, a C-show when they were only running two shows a night is how it would work. But we're going to learn more about what was on this card as we go along. And yeah, yeah, there's some interesting stuff. I mean, you got the Macho Man Randy Savage against Dusty Rhodes. But you know, we, we've already seen that. We're, we're well into that program. And Sensational Sherry, but, he's fa- but she's facing Sapphire. So how good could that possibly be? I'm going to drag my mother to that. I'm not even sure in the May, in May of 1990 if she had forgiven me for dragging her so I could see the movie No Holds Barred in the theater. She had to sit there for two hours or however long it was and actually watch that thing. But mercifully, all right, I'll, I'll get off that subject here because we start out with a, a nice two-for-one promo. See, when you break up Sherry and Savage into different matches, you combine them for the promo thing so you get a nice two-for-one. And it, it's literal, too, because... Usually, for these event centers, you only get 30 seconds, but Savage and Sherry have engendered so much respect for their work that they get over a minute. Oh, yeah, Dusty Rhodes, the American dream, you can't win. No, you can't. And sweet sapphire, brown sugar, you got even less of a chance than the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, who has no chance here. The Macho King and the Sensational Queen are, yeah, those type of people that don't even need to be in the squared circle with commoners and peasants like yourselves, yeah, but for laugh, for the party type atmosphere, for getting that, yeah, sky high type feeling where you look down on other people, yeah, and you 
Spit on them, yeah! You got that opportunity! Do you feel like that would be really, really, really nice? I feel like that would be really, really nice! Step fire! Step fire! Get ready for the beating of your life because your time is limited. Quite limited. Limited, yeah! Specifically! You too, Dusty Rhodes! Yeah! I don't really have to say too much more about the Macho Man Randy Savage and Dusty Rhodes. I mean, I know Dusty, he, he was holing out on 17 at this point in his career, if, if you consider it in, like a golf course. But, like, Sherry going out there night after night against Sapphire, who isn't a full-time wrestler, and trying to drag something out of her... And I don't know what the nature of these house show matches were, but let's let's just say I don't think any tears were shed at SummerSlam when they didn't have the big one-on-one on pay-per-view. I mean, we'd already more or less seen it at WrestleMania with all the spectacle and everything. But Sherry, you know, one hell, one hell of a performer, and and that that kind of, that should go without saying now. So maybe I should just add that her to the list with Dusty Rhodes and Randy Savage. So up next, yeah, we got. The Bushwhackers, who are, are in their thing with rhythm and blues, I guess. Whoa! Yeah. Oh, Cumberland! Yes, Cumberland! Payback, bloody time! Payback time! It's time to get even with those bloody rhythm and bloody blues! Yes, cousin! That bloody whack on the head with a guitar brought us back to reality! And you know what reality means! Look, these are very tense times in this country, and around the world for that matter. And when you really drill down and think about it, you need to limit your exposure to certain things. I've talked about staying off social media to improve your mental health. Well, in this case, I just really don't feel like listening to any Bushwhackers promos. I understand their purpose in the World Wrestling Federation. Okay, they're, they're, they're comedy act. It might not necessarily appeal to me, but certainly appeal to others. But I'm sorry. I just got other things on my mind that I would rather worry about than listening to and trying to discern this Bushwhackers promo that sounds exactly like 100,000 Bushwhackers promos that have come before and would come after it because they're still hanging around there in 1996. Up next, we have the final first-round match of the Intercontinental title tournament that was necessitated from the Ultimate Warrior winning the WWF title at WrestleMania VI. This is in spite of the fact that the finals took place the day before the Superstars tapings. One of those rare WWF moments where they kind of screwed up in a WCW way, although it really didn't matter because it was staggered out. And I don't know, anybody who went to both the Superstars and Challenge taping Travel between, I think it was San Antonio and Austin. I mean, yeah, that, that's drivable, but you know, who exactly was doing it? But this, this is a pretty good name match here. This is Rick Martell against Rowdy Roddy Piper. And immediately I went into another hypothesis again. I'm, I'm not a very good scientist. In fact, science was my worst subject in school. So the fact that I even know the word hypothesis is, you know, <laughs> kind of, kind of interesting. But my thought was, Piper on the B-Show. I feel like I didn't see this very often. And then I looked it up, and it was exposed as as bullshit as when I was saying that somehow Philly's attendance would affect wrestling attendance in the city of brotherly love. In fact, 
three times in 1990 alone prior to this, and we're only in mid-May, Piper had matches on Wrestling Challenge, including one since WrestleMania. He was on the April 8th edition. He was on one, he challenged once in 1989, but my theory does hold water in that he never wrestled a match on All-Star Wrestling for his entire run, unless it was something that re-aired from Championship Wrestling and they wanted to, you know, drive the point home. Maybe something like when he, when the Rick McGraw match? No, wait, no, they didn't re-air that because Rick McGraw was already dead. Made it kind of strange. So these two guys, Martell and Piper, just a few episodes ago, were in 1980, and they're tag team partners in Portland. Almost 10 years to the month before this. Okay, 10 years in two months. And it made me wonder. It's interesting to think about Piper's run here from 89 into 90. It almost splits into two because then he, you know, he shows up on crotches at WrestleMania 7, and then... Eventually, he works into the Flair program, leading to the Intercontinental title and basically getting Virgil over as a top five babyface in the promotion. I wonder if Piper had the ability to pick who he was going to work with in these matches. Him being paired up with Martell here kind of, kind of seems like, okay, these two guys wanted to, wanted to work with each other. I don't know. I, I don't really have any evidence. It's just something that I'm, hypothesizing that's uh there's that word again as piper makes his way in he, he's waving the kilt like like he's a bullfighter which is a nice little premonition for what the future holds for rick martell's foil tito santana when he becomes a bullfighter the next year as martell is just spraying the arrogance from the atomizer yes he's carrying that around at this point and Piper gets tagged from behind when he is kind of pointing it out and wants it out of harm's way or kept at the ringside desk. And we get a slugfest to start. Piper gets the, the classic Rowdy Rowdy Piper eye poke. And I notice that Piper has striped socks that come over his boots. I don't feel like I saw that all the time. But in this case, he's wearing the Butch Reed style striped socks. So A plus for that. Atomic Drop sends Martell into the corner and get a two-count, Piper does. Now, the model, I I think a lot of people, and rightfully so, credit Rick Rude as being the greatest seller of the Atomic Drop. I mean, after all, there's a whole Twitter account for it. Rick Martell, don't sleep on him. The I guess the bottom line is Lothario Pretty Boy types do not like getting Atomic dropped. If you, if you have that gimmick, you have to oversell the move, like 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 your like your dong is getting crushed or something. Martel fights back at a slam and then just kind of chokes him down on the mat. Kind of the heel aggressive offense from Martel as a big right sends Piper out of the ring, <laughs> like like it's a boxing match at WrestleMania two. No, it's not Mr. T, but. Martell gets caught preening on the second rope towards the fans, and Piper you know, nails him with a shot to the gut and follows that up with some furious rights. And Martell ends up on the outside, gets sent into the guardrail, and then into the ring post. Back inside now, Piper gets caught on the way in, so we transition again that way as Martell gets... He goes over and grabs the arrogance atomizer... 
it's a rather confusing moment because you think, oh, is he going to get disqualified here? Like, why is he just doing that with the referee watching? It's not like there was a ref bump or anything, but nothing happens there. Slammed by Martel, but then an elbow drop misses as Piper reverses a corner whip. And Martel jumps to the second rope, dives back, but nobody is home on the crossbody. Piper then lifts up Martel and kind of hot shots him, drops him on the top rope. Martel tries to bail out of the ring, but he is stopped by Piper. Another another thumb to the eye by this time by Martel. And he goes right back to the atomizer and then tries to spray it, but he completely misses Piper. So then it's almost like it's almost like a fumble where the atomizer is on the canvas and they both dive for it like it's the coin to the quote unquote coin toss from the original xfl i don't know if you remember that but they would have a ball and the two guys would race 20 yards and whoever would come up with it would get the opening kickoff it was some ridiculous rule like that so they both dive for it heenan and gorilla are debating what exactly is in <laughs> One of them suggests that it's pesticide. Like, yes, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that Rick Martell is carrying around pesticide with him everywhere. Martell does recover the quote unquote fumble, but then they end up outside the ring. Piper, he gets a chair. <laughs> a very, very funny visual. He, Martell sprays the arrogance at him and Piper blocks it with a chair. I don't know. I, I don't think it was necessarily meant to be a comedy spot, but it, it, it hit me as such. Piper then hits Martell with it, and we, we got a d- double disqualification here because we can't have any clean finishes in this Intercontinental title tournament where you had, as we saw at the top of the show, Dino Bravo and Brutus Beefcake. They go to a double countout. This is a double disqualification in this case, so it's not a double countout. Tito Santana defeated Hakeem, but by countout because he did the flying forearm. Hakeem goes flying out of the ring, can't get back in in time. Only Mr. Perfect was the one who picked up a a clean pin. I I don't even remember who it was, and I I don't really care. It was probably Jimmy Snooker, but maybe maybe I've just forgotten. I don't know. But the as I said, the finals were already taped the day before, so it's kind of you know one of those funny things. And not only that. But when Perfect wins the tournament, and maybe I'll cover that superstar someday, he's holding up a tag belt rather than the Intercontinental belt because I've developed this thing in my head that the Warrior screwed up and lost the belt or something or other. But yeah, I'm I'm starting to think that because they concluded the tournament before this Piper Martell match occurred, I'm starting to think that professional wrestling might not be on the level. It just continues to get more and more interesting here in the World Wrestling Federation. It is going to get very interesting right here in Boston, Saturday evening, June 2nd. I may have seen this before and completely forgot, but I don't recall them doing two different Boston area shows for the event center, where they do the Worcester Centrum and then the Boston Garden in separate segments. I I always remember it would just be either Boston Garden all the way through or whatever. Now, New York, I could see, because you have the Meadowlands, the Garden, and the Nassau Coliseum, all within a reasonable driving distance of each other. So June 2nd at the Boston Garden, I talked about it earlier, Ultimate Warrior and Rick Rude is the main event. And in something of an oddity here, because you have Rick Rude off doing the the training thing that I was complaining about earlier, and we are going to see one of those vignettes a little bit later, it's Bobby Heenan doing the promo by himself. 
Very simple, Ultimate Warrior. You have something we want. And you also have something you want. But you see, with Ravishing Rick Rude, I can get what I want. And that's the World Wrestling Federation Championship. Now, right now, Ravishing Rick Rude is going through the most extensive training of any athlete in any sport. And we're going to get what we want. He's beaten you before for the Intercontinental title. He's going to beat you now for the World Wrestling Federation title. Believe me. Rick Rude undergoing some intensive training, and apparently we will see a new Rick Rude June 2nd. And therein lies the problem. It was the exact same Rick Rude. Oh, he has shorter hair. Big deal. He's doing the exact same moves in the ring. At least WCW the following year with Lex Luger. It's like, all right, he's a heel now, and he does a pile driver for some reason because Harley Race taught him. There, there was nothing that came out of all of this training stuff. It was basically, oh, he's training like Rocky, which, by the way, feels like a babyface move, even though... Now that I think about it, Vince McMahon's training stuff for the 99 Royal Rumble is, you know, funny stuff. But that, that was really more of a comedy thing. This Rick Rude thing was intended to make him a serious contender. And then he comes back and he's exactly the same freaking guy as before. Oh, he doesn't do the Rude Awakening after matches? I mean, so what? I mean, it was the same freaking guy. Speaking of guys who are always the same, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty are facing the Orient Express at the Boston Garden. This promo ends up being interesting on two different fronts. Number one, and probably less surprising, Marty Jannetty is wearing sunglasses, which tells you that he, he must have been hung over as all hell. He must have had an 8 a.m. call to come in and do the, <laughs> do the local promos or whatever. But Shawn Michaels, for whatever reason, probably because he's facing the Orient Express, decides to go into an impromptu history lesson, however inaccurate it might be. You know, some people in life, you give them an inch, they take a foot. You give them a foot, they take a mile. You know, way back in 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and the U.S. forgave them for that. And now they've marched into our backyard and are buying up everything in sight. Well, Orient Express, you're now trying to corner the market on the World Wrestling Federation tag team scene. Well, there's two guys called the Rockers. They're going to prevent that from happening. That's right. You know, you come into WrestleMania, and you want to throw something in somebody's eyes. I don't know what it was, salt, powder, it doesn't really matter. But the thing is this. You know something, the Rockers are sick and tired of playing goody-two-shoes to everybody while we're getting run over. And it's going to end. Rules are going out the window. The Rockers are going to play the way you want to play. And I'll tell you what, we're going to rock and roll, strut and stroll all over this squint-headed cells, and you're going down. Well, as I said, my critique is that the Rockers are not brawlers on the level with either the Fantastics or the Rock and Roll Express, but... Yeah, the U.S. forgave Japan for Pearl Harbor? I, I don't remember that particular thing. I, I, I seem to recall the demanding of an unconditional surrender. <laughs> I, that doesn't feel like, oh, we forgave. We're, we're literally still occupying the country in some ways in terms of, you know, military bases and whatnot in Okinawa. I mean, haven't you watched Karate Kid 2? Oh, my God. Why don't we just go right into the next match, which is Demolition the new WWF Tag Team Champion. Well, not really new, because it had been about six weeks since, since, you know, when this had aired. They're taking on the team of the Black Knight and Buddy Rose, who apparently is not a playboy at this time. And I'll, I'll, I'll put my love for Buddy Rose aside here and just point out, this is a very interesting time for Demolition. Apparently, I'm obsessed with timelines in 1990 WWF. Maybe they should put one of those on the network, since... You know, they, they, they've they been promoting this timeline show, and, and I guess it's good, but 
you know, how about bringing back hidden gems? Okay. People like me seem to enjoy that. So is this the end of babyface demolition? How many more times do we actually see them? Now things are, things are normal right now, but the house, the heart foundation are the house show opponents during this time period. So you're doing a face versus face thing there, but it's always ends up in a double disqualification or a double count out. On Superstars the following week, on May 19th, the last, that, that's the last one where you see them on that show without crush. On the June 17th Wrestling Challenge, there's also no crush for demolition either. And, and I thought, okay, well, where is, where is this gap when the whole shellfish thing or whatever the hell happened to Bill Eady? It's after May 20th. So it's a week after this. You get a gap where Smash wrestles a series of singles matches against Bret Hart on house shows. So there's, there's three of them. Pick it up on June 1st, and you got some fellow by the name of B.A. filling in for Axe. That, of course, is Brian Adams, where I just hadn't thought of a name for him yet. Because Brian Adams worked a tryout match that I think was actually released as a hidden gem at some point. I, I know I've seen it somewhere. The August 19th Wrestling Challenge is the last time you see Axe and Smash as a team together on television, at least as just the two of them with Crush on the outside. And then I thought to myself, was there ever a point where Axe teamed with Crush? And the, the sad fact is, no, I could not find a single instance, even on untelevised house shows, where it was just Axe and Crush. Poor Barry Darso, he couldn't get, couldn't get a night off. Couldn't get, couldn't get the day off to go play golf as Rose and Darso smash start out. And all I ask is that the Black Knight come in eventually and eat the pin. That's all I care about in this one as Rose gets overpowered in the corner. And the feud with the hearts and demolition at this point where it's two face teams was actually complicated by the rockers being involved from the Saturday night's main event that they did that aired on April 28th, which was actually taped the day before. And like how you have three face teams sort of triangulating, and it's like, okay, one of them is going to turn. And there seems to be a little undercurrent of the Hart Foundation being suggested that maybe Heenan would like to manage them someday, and Gorilla is sort of needling him about that. As Axe is, Axe is in now with Rose, and all I see is a pair of Bob Backlund challengers from 82 and 83. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you. I mean, you might be seeing some fat guy and somebody with a shellfish allergy. I just see two Bob Backlund challengers. As Gorilla, again, makes the suggestion that Heenan should manage the Hart Foundation, which I believe was mentioned in one of those Herb Coons tidbits that relayed on the place to be podcast, which by the way, I was on the Place to Be podcast this past Monday discussing the main event from February 1st of 1991. The other thing is when you get three face teams like that and the Legion of Doom coming in and they're going to be baby faces also, somebody's got, at least one of those teams has got to turn. And with Demolition, with Axe being, you know, kind of on the downside with his health, they were the obvious team. As sad as it is that we did not get peak demolition versus LOD matches like people would have wanted in, let's say, 80, 88 and 89. As Rose gets sent into the boot of Smash, who is on the apron, 
and Rose is able to tag out, and I just breathe a large sigh of relief as Smash works the Black Knight over, sends him into Axe's boot, as they point out that Demolition, Gorilla does, they three-peated at WrestleMania six, becoming the first team to win the tag team titles three times. Now, you got to be careful because, famously, the trademark for three-peat is owned by basketball coach Pat Riley, who was then the coach of the Lakers, and he trademarked it in 1988 because the Lakers would be going for their third straight title in 1989, even though Byron Scott, a very good Laker, was the one who coined the term. And this was, coincidentally enough, around the time when the players started getting pissed off at Pat Riley and were just really getting kind of sick of his shit. Demolition decapitation finishes, and my only wish was granted here, which is that the Black Knight eat the pin. Buddy Rose is spared, and everybody lived happily ever after, except for Axe, who had a crippling shellfish allergy. We go now to Mean Gene Oakland, who's on the platform and welcomes in the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. And since I mentioned this many weeks ago, and I think I saw something in the news about it in the last month about Ted DiBiase's Mississippi house, which, by the way, still on the market for $1.575 million in Madison, Mississippi. Now, I feel it might be a bit high, especially for a dude who might see that house seized by the government. I mean, you think he might want to just dump it as quickly as possible, you know, replenish his coffers, and then, you know, pay, he's going to end up paying a substantial fine either way. But I guess he's the million-dollar man, right? I mean, you know, it's not like he's a man of the cloth who was you know, pro- probably stealing money from people who really needed it. But anyway, I'll put that aside here because his, he's, he's got a feud with a different kind of law and order at this point, the big boss man. Oh, would be funny if DiBiase went to prison and he ended up in Cobb County. That that actually would be funny. I like all all I would ever think about is this feud, which started very very slow because Bossman is commissioned by DiBiase by way of slick, which apparently Bossman took issue with, to get the million dollar belt back from Jake the Snake Roberts, and Bossman does isn't going to take a payoff. So he's going to be a man of honor, and DiBiase doesn't like that. But still, that's not the ma- – DiBiase's going to settle the thing with Jake the Snake before he can get the thing going with the boss man who dispatches Akeem on WrestleMania six onto the Saturday night's main event where there's a rematch between the boss man and Akeem. Apparently, all those fast matches at WrestleMania six all led to rematches with the hearts of the Bolsheviks and then boss man and Akeem. Cause that thing was under two minutes at WrestleMania six in part because, you know, they were probably running a little short on time at that point in the show as DiBiase came in from behind and attacked the boss man and cuffed him and worked him over a little bit. I did all on my own at Wrestlemania. 
WrestleMania 6. I didn't need you, boss man. You know, Teddy Biondi, I've spoken privately over the past couple of weeks with the big boss man, and he has shared with me that he can't be bought. He doesn't have a price. Everybody's got a price, Oakland. I'm amused that Oakland has conversations with the big boss man. It's not like you could text message somebody back then and get his thoughts on the matter. Oakland is calling these guys up to get the scoop. And he doesn't even have a hotline to shill at this point. So I guess, I guess he worked a little harder when he was outside the auspices of World Championship Wrestling. But Ted DiBiase, let, let's face it here. This, this dude spent money foolishly on a number of different occasions, almost like he was embezzling it from somewhere and didn't care what the hell happened. It, it, yes, he did eventually get the million-dollar belt back all on his own. But for God's sakes... I mean, some of the times you just threw money around like, oh, I'm going to pay off Slick to get the boss man without doing any homework as to whether the boss man would be amenable to that. Oh, I want to buy Hercules as a slave. Well, is Hercules maybe the best guy for that role? Buys the contract of Andre from Heenan and doesn't check out the fact that, well, I guess he probably had more of a case there because there probably wasn't anything explicit in the rule book that said that you couldn't buy the title. But you know, Jack Tunney with his Bowie Coon in the, in the best interests of wrestling or some such nonsense. But yeah, he, he, he failed to do his homework on a number of different occasions. Not to mention the debacle that was the million dollar corporation when he was a manager that was basically a failure from start to finish. You see here in this building, and you, boss man, are no different than any of them because you will be on your knees. This feud got cut off at SummerSlam because they had to move on to the very important business of humiliating Dusty Rhodes on his way out the door with Sapphire and Million Dollar Man, that that, that whole business. So this feud just sort of quietly ends without a blow-off, and I think it's one of those things where they didn't want, uh, obviously they did not want the boss man to be losing his first big feud as a babyface, but at the same time, always still somewhat protective of Ted DiBiase because he's always a guy that they could plug into the main event of shows. Like he's facing the Warrior right after the Survivor Series for the WWF title on the main event. So don't not have him take a loss to the boss man on a pay per view. Of course, back then you could just do count out or DQ or any number of different things, but. Yeah, there, there was some skits, too, where DiBiase bought off people in Cobb County, Georgia, to say bad things about the boss man. I mean, that, that's more throwing throwing good money after bad there. I mean, what was he seeking to accomplish? I, I don't really know. So why don't I just go on to the next bout, which is, talk at great length, about the genius earlier on in his schedule in 1990. It's his nemesis, Coco Beware, <laughs> here in 1990. And the theme song has changed over. It's no longer Pile Driver or Ghostbuster or whatever. I don't even remember what the hell it was called. But it's not the one from the Pile Driver. I'm going to say, everybody got up, everybody get down. But <laughs> no matter how much you might like that song, 
Now I got Bobby Heenan in my ears just mocking it ruthlessly. Coco's facing a frumpy-looking dude by the name of Randy Neverman. I was going to say Randy Newman, but I was actually able to read my notes for once. He was Paul Diamond's tag team partner in the enhancement match the day before, so tying up that loose end. As Neverman attacks early, Coco then dunks a clothesline, hits two drop kicks, and a slam as... Gorilla in one of those moments that leaves me scratching my head where he's, he's gotta work it, he's gotta work in the plug for the Hulk Hogan vitamins and says that Coco was able to get up for the drop kick because he takes his Hulk Hogan vitamins. Like, okay. I mean, I know he was getting up for those drop kicks in 86 when he came in, but apparently it's the Hulk Hogan vitamins now. Flying head scissors. And then Heenan and Gorilla are starting to get rolling here. I mean, that's why I played like 40 straight seconds before. But anytime you get a good will you stop moment, it's great. He said Frankie looks good today. Only way Frankie looks good to me be garnished. Wouldn't you stop? To me, and I've said this before, there's nothing better than on primetime wrestling when Heenan would do something and Gorilla would break. And it would happen fairly frequently too, where he would smile or he just wouldn't hold back and he would, he would start laughing. Either Heenan broke his phone or whatever. As Neverman gets in a little bit of offense, but then misses an elbow and Coco hits a vertical suplex, gets a two count where they're suggesting that maybe he was going for the ghostbuster brain buster, but, uh, apparently not at this point. He locks in an arm bar and then. Neverman puts his head down, a cardinal mistake for a ring veteran, and Coco turns it into a bulldog. Pretty ingenious stuff there. And then he gives the signal for the Ghostbuster, brainbuster move, and he hits that. But when he goes for the pin, he's doing the sort of fly thing and sort of spins on Neverman's upper torso. It was kind of funny. clear to me why Heenan would want to eat Frankie. I mean, that doesn't really feel like more of a meal. It feels like a very, very small appetizer with the parakeet. So they now throw it to the Rick Rude training video in which Bobby Heenan is playing the role of, well, I was going to say Apollo Creed, but he's really not running on the beach with Rick Rude. Maybe maybe he's just playing that Burt Young role where he hangs out with the robot at home. Apparently, I saw that there's going to be some sort of director's cut or some sort of Stallone cut of Rocky IV, and he's getting rid of the robot, and I have to admit, I'm a little outraged by that. Ultimate Warrior, I hope you're watching, and I hope you're watching good. It's not just another nice day at the beach. No, we're at work, and ravishing Rick Root is running, pal. He's running after you, and you know it, and we know it, and he's going to catch you. God. <laughs> look at that look at that i can beat that time bobby 
and I can beat you, Ultimate Warrior. You remember, Warrior, I'm the one who took your title. I'm the only man who's ever beaten the Ultimate Warrior. And you know me, Warrior. And you know, just as the waves crash against the shore forever and ever, that I'm going to pound your body endlessly. He's going to pound his body, which can mean multiple things. But given what we know about Jim Helwig, the Ultimate Warrior's worldview, we, we know that it's probably just a straight-up wrestling match, right? Right? Yeah. Until you crumble to the mat, Ultimate Warrior, I'm coming to get you. Ultimate Warrior, I'm going to take your title. Five more miles, bud. Let's go! Go! I get what the intention was with these, but it just didn't work on so many different levels. Because like I said, there, there was absolutely no change to what the character was. Oh, he, all of a sudden he's a little bit more serious than he was before. I mean, because of his hair? Or, or, or what is it? But what made me laugh, and, and maybe I'm just seeing things, is I believe Rude was wearing shoes to run on the beach, which was kind of funny. Right now, folks, uh, courtesy of Coliseum Home Video, here's some exciting footage from WrestleMania 6. We know what you don't got, and we got. We got the crowd, too. The first lady of the World Wrestling Federation, Miss Elizabeth. Not entirely sure what the point of that was, other than to promote the Coliseum release. Like, okay, here's Elizabeth from WrestleMania. Are we supposed to just give thanks that everybody in Canada is polite enough to not throw shit at Elizabeth when she's coming to the ring? I think Randy Savage probably would have been enough of a professional to wait until he was backstage to flip out on, you know, somebody if, if that had happened. So for our final bout, we have Sonny Blaze <laughs> taking on the Warlord. And as I hoped earlier that Buddy Rose was not going to eat the pin, I am now hoping for a Warlord inset promo where he talks because I have a very tried and true calibrated Warlord talks alarm that I pointed out on Twitter. Anytime the Warlord talks, I want to hear it because he's got a funny voice. It doesn't sound exactly like that. I want to point out that the Warlord 1990 bears some similarities to Bill Goldberg in 1998. They both wear plain black trunks. They're both, you know, being, I guess, I don't want to say reintroduced because Bill Goldberg kind of got shifted a little bit as you went into 98. Because remember, he's a heel at Starcade 97. And Warlord was undefeated for quite a long time from the point where he joins up with Slick all the way past... SummerSlam, like 40-0, according to Cage Match. I, I didn't add up all the history of WWE.com matches, except for June 10th. He has a DQ loss to Tito Santana in Philadelphia. But but now he's he's the new warlord. He's the phantom of the mid-card. <laughs> he's taking it all out on Tito Santana, which reminds me, because if you recall, in 1988, Tito Santana brought in the warlord and the barbarian in a non-televised segment to basically be his revenge against Demolition for injuring Rick Martel. You see, Tito had learned that you go and get a proxy rather than what Martel did against the Islanders where you fight them by yourselves for a while. Go out and get two guys who are even bigger than you. The problem is it kind of turned out like the Mujahideen with the United States arming the 
rebels in Afghanistan against the Soviets. You know, kind of backfired on the U.S. some 10, 15 years later, wouldn't you say? And Tito ends up spending much of 1990 losing to who? The Warlord and the Barbarian. Now, of course, he gets a nice little shiny intercontinental title tournament. But here here we are, yeah, the Warlord. And Gorilla says that Slick has done better than Heenan in that whole exchange, which took place back in March, where Fuji sells the Barbarian to Heenan, and the Warlord is sold to Slick. And I've said it before, I miss manager transactions. I miss managers. I miss managers who are not Paul Heyman. Yeah, there's Zelina Vega, but I really don't see her all that much. And it's not like she's the spokesperson for Andrade or the other guy. I, I can't remember his name. Angel Garza? I, 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 if I call him that, I'm just going to end up calling him Hector Garza. And all I'm ever going to think of is Hector Garza's uh, torn scrotum injury, which unfortunately is the first thing I think about when it comes to his career. Basic ass shit by the warlord. <laughs> Shoulder block. A delayed vertical suplex. He doesn't need to be fancy or anything. It's it's not like he has to go out there and, you know, do dives over the top rope. A lot of big guys these days tend to forget that. Now, here here we go. Ding, 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 ding. The Warlord inset promo alert. And I'm very excited for this. Warlord didn't even get to talk. Well, as the meme goes, I am disappointed in all of that. Then again, a warlord technically is a military commander, and may- maybe they need spokespeople out there to talk for them. I, I don't know. I- who-, who knows? They say that there's not an ounce of fat on the warlord, which I would counter. That's actually a bad thing, because the fat can help you in countering diseases. So the warlord might be vulnerable in a situation where you have a pandemic flu. Or, or in a COVID era. I just hope that the Warlord is doing okay right now. I mean, I I know he did, he did the public appearance circuit there for a while. He was at that Miami Marlins game years ago where he clotheslined the uh, mascot and then Booker T came in and made the save. So there's, somewhere out there, there's a Miami Marlins jersey that says Warlord 28 on the back of it. I'm surprised that the Marlins, when they had all those COVID cases in their bullpen, didn't didn't just sign the Warlord to come in and pitch, you know, the seventh and eighth inning of the game against the Orioles because it was that week. Anyway, he scores a clothesline on Sonny Blaze and hits the power slam, which is his finisher. And yes, it is the Davy Boy Smith style power slam. God, the similarities between. Those guys, and it's been much of 1991, paired off against each other. That That is how he picks up the win. As Heenan asked for a replay, and Gorilla is like, nah, nah, we're, we're not going to show the replay of that. I was like, well, you know, we're pushing the Warlord and all, but we're not going to push him to the extent where we're going to show the replay of his finisher. I mean, it didn't look like there was anything wrong with it. It was just, yeah, we're running out of time, fans. See the live action, see it happen this coming Friday evening, May 18th at the Worcester Centrum. The Red Rooster will be set. He takes on Canadian strongman Dino Bravo. Main event in any arena in the country, Jess. 
Yeah, the Red Rooster versus Dino Bravo in the year of our Lord, 1990. And they're wondering why attendance is down across the board. Maybe maybe I'm wrong for blaming it on the Warrior. Maybe it's this series of Red Rooster-Dino Bravo matches that apparently were taking place. So as I think about it, you got one of these two guys is going to talk. And I don't know which one I want to hear from. Because if you hear from the Red Rooster at this point in time, he's, he's just totally mailing it in. So you, you might not even get the ridiculous rah, 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 and all that stuff. And then on the flip side, you have Dino Bravo. But I'm going to go with him because at least it's Jimmy Hart and, you know, it just feels normal. Red Rooster, surprise, surprise. This is the world's strongest man, Dino Bravo. You know, Jimmy, it's not always easy to find opponents when you're the world's strongest man. But I understand, Red Rooster, you want to test my strength. Well, that's fine with me, because I can assure you of one thing, Red Rooster. I'm going to make it the most painful experience in your wrestling career. I can't stand the sight of you, Red Rooster. I'm going to get rid of you once and for all. (laughs) So here's the thing. If you hate both guys... Wouldn't you actually side with Dino Bravo in this case? Because if he's vowing to get rid of the Red Rooster, at least at some point in the near future, you're only going to have to watch and deal with one out of the two. So you want you want to just eliminate one of them right now, and then okay, we'll reset. Well, now we'll worry about getting it somebody in to eliminate Bravo, and I think we all know who that would be. But he actually lived up to his word because there's no Red Rooster results. There's there's one stray result in June. I, I question whether that's actually true because it's Moncton, New Brunswick. I, I have my doubts that Terry Taylor went up to do one final shot in New Brunswick after three weeks off. But yeah, Dino Bravo defeats the Red Rooster. You're seeing that all around at the end of May. So, yeah, apparently Dino Bravo lived up to his word. So good job by the former Canadian heavyweight champion, which, by the way, they they had to stop saying once they did the strongest man in the world bit, which is complete nonsense. Up next, we we heard from Savage and Sherry earlier on. So it is only fitting that we hear from Dusty Rhodes and eventually Sapphire because... I don't know if she can stand still for like the full minute that a promo is because she'd always do the run in and go. Ah, da, 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 da. Oh, yeah, let me tell you, Macho King. You know, in this country, there are a lot of people get down and work on their hands and knees. There are a lot of people, like my daddy, for instance, that crawl in the ditches doing plumbing work. And sweet sapphire, my brown sugar, who you embarrass in public, mama got on her hands and knees and scrub a few floors. But that's what this country is all about. It's not embarrassing people in public, saying and claiming that Sapphire actually kneeled down and kissed the feet of the Macho King Randy Savage. Now dues got to be paid. Now the deed is done. Now the American Dream Dusty Rhodes and his precious Sapphire will pay back the dues coming for this country. And when it's all over, I won't no crying. Come here, baby. Tell them about it. Say, I don't know a lot about wrestling, but I'm going to teach you something about some pain. Ooh, and pain, blues, and agony is falling on the king's house now. I'll make the point yet again. Dusty Rhodes in 1990, while the character might be silly to many, his promos age a hell of a lot better than, let's say, Roddy Piper in 97 and pretty much everything that occurred after that. Yeah, they might, you can debate the merits of those two guys at their peak, but as they get towards the end of his end career, Dusty Rhodes is better as a promo than end career Flair, end career Piper, 
and probably end career Hogan where, you know, he's just <laughs> delusions of, of mania. And I'm not talking about WrestleMania three. So that, that's it for this, but we get the promotional consideration from Lord Alfred Hayes. And I was actually kind of amused by the first two because they're stacked back to back and just having the two things next to each other seemed odd. Paid for by the following. Sugar Daddy, some things never change. Sugar Daddy has the flavor which lasts a lifetime. Introducing new sugar-free dentine. The sugar-free gum made to make your breath beautiful. And that feels like quite a swerve, bro. You're saying, okay, sugar daddy, the flavor that lasts a lifetime. But then you're also telling me to chew sugar-free gum, which, by the way, I can't recommend highly enough as somebody who chewed Big Red in college and probably did damage to my teeth that way. But it's sugar-free to save your breath. So do you need the sugar-free gum in order to save yourself from the sugar daddy? I, I, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure of what the hell's going on. But we actually do have one final thing here because it's an angle big enough for, to air on Wrestling Challenge and Superstars, the finals in the Intercontinental Title Tournament. You know, we had to wrap that up quickly. We had to make sure we didn't have a clean finish in the Martell Piper match and both guys were eliminated. So we get promos from Mr. Perfect and the former Two-time Intercontinental Champion Tito Santana going for the gold again. Tito Santana, next week, the Intercontinental Championship is on the line. And you're going to find out, like everybody else has had to, the hard way that I am the perfect Intercontinental Champion. Mr. Perfect, next week right here, the winner to be the Intercontinental Champion, and you will find out that you're no longer perfect when I walk out with the Intercontinental Championship. Arriba! I'll refer you to the fifth episode of GFA Live. I think it was the fifth one where we did the Intercontinental title tournament. And I, I liked that match. It didn't get the same level of time as the Saturday Night Main Event match from July, which I think is one of the best matches that ever aired on that show. It was amazing how Tito, even as he slid down the card so gradually over the years, still felt so viable to me. And I think part of it was, as a kid, I spent all this time watching these old Coliseum videos. And yeah, Tito's Tito's an IC champion, and he, he's one of the top guys. And as he's sliding down, like I'm not really noticing it in the moment. I'm still sort of perceiving him as a threat. I don't know. Maybe Maybe I'm alone in that. That'll do it for WWF Wrestling Challenge for May 13th, 1990. And see ya, stupid guy in the thumbnail. I don't have to look at you again for a while. to remind you, make sure you didn't miss the Adams Division podcast this past Monday on the Greetings from Allentown feed, also released last week on the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, where my good pal Steve Bennett of the Sportscasters and I were putting together a card of SummerSlam matches from 1988 to 1998 without repeating wrestlers and without using any title match more than one, more than once. So you can't choose an intercontinental title match from two different SummerSlams is what I'm saying. So the whole point is, how the hell do you end up using Bret Hart? Well, you choose, as I say during the podcast, you choose what Bret Hart match you want first. And then, then you work the rest of it around. 
whichever one. And Steve and I actually had two different philosophies on that. So do check that out. Now, Steve, on his podcast, The Sportscasters, has Corbin Reif, who wrote a book. I can't say the name of it because it has the F word in it. But actually, it's a total bleeping godhead which is about Chris Cornell, the singer from Soundgarden, Audio Slave, and probably some other stuff that I'm forgetting about. Uh, definitely synonymous with the Seattle scene. So it's not just a sports media podcast, people. There, there's a lot of other things that Steve explores on that show. On the Our Vantage Point podcast, they're between one, episode 190 and 191, so they kind of took a week to review an old MSG show with the great Richard Land, and they chose the September 1987 MSG show, which I had to actually look up what that was, and how bad could it be? It has a Tiger Chung Lee versus Brad Rangans match, which if I told you that that match happened, you might not know, you would probably think it was in the AWA. But of course it's not in the AWA because I'm not sure that the Chunger, sure that the Chunger ever made his way out to Minneapolis. So do check out that one as well. And I have one final piece of business to take care of for the second week in a row. Another edition of YouTube Comment Theater. This, this went away for a while and these are actual YouTube comments left by actual users because I was using videos that were not on YouTube for a while and some of the ones that I would do wouldn't even have any comments. And this one is relatively low considering that the show has been on YouTube now for over four years with 12,000 views, but there's only 11 comments. Come on, people. I thought 1990 WWF was popular out there. I don't even screen these, okay? I, again, I'm just assuming that these are actual users, although as I'm scrolling down, I don't see too many avatars. I just see, you know, an initial, so people didn't take the time for that. So we start out with Ian Thompson. Superfly gets the four count for the win. I did not notice the referee doing that, but sometimes the referees would hit the mat four times for whatever reason. Maybe to give it a more clean three count. I'm not exactly sure what was going on with that. Aaron Luscano says, Isn't that a young Shane McMahon in the crowd? And that is in reference to the thumbnail guy that I despise. And yeah, maybe a mild resemblance to Shane McMahon. Maybe maybe if he got punched in the face at Raw Underground a couple of times. Robert Johnson. Okay, I don't think it's the same Robert Johnson says. Zukov had a 63-pound head. Now, I don't know how you would actually do something like that, how you would weigh his head. Do you, like, have him lay down and just, like, press his head against the skin? It feels like a very difficult task to, to weigh Boris Zukov's, j just his head alone. Loose Can 88 says, Papa was smooth in the ring and was bigger and taller than Randy. All right, is this person actually suggesting that Lanny Papo is better than Randy Savage? And no, he's he's not as good in the ring as as Randy because the, the the prancing around and the mincing. I mean that that's that it kind of sets him apart from Randy, but it also ensured that he was never really going to be taken seriously at that point in time. John Doe says all content belongs to the WWE. Well, thanks a lot for pointing that out, Narc. What, what, what are you trying to get this damn thing reported? 
Of course, you could just accuse me like, hey, Winston, you're the one doing a podcast and pointing out that this stuff's on YouTube. Well, I, I'm throwing myself on the mercy of WWE to actually leave this stuff on here because they don't put any of this on the network. It's like, I understand the superstars of wrestling thing, okay? Even though they blurred that out for 24-7 a long time ago, they could put that on the network. But fine. I would accept Wrestling Challenge on the network, but no, they, they, why would they see fit to do that when you can put up, you know, the 18th Seth Rollins documentary that nobody, and I mean nobody, cares about? Kevin Donovan says, it doesn't get any more exciting than this, baby. Dig it. Wow. All that over an episode of Challenge from May of 1990. Okay. Wade Brooks says, holy shit, Lanny Poffo won a match. Oh, he, he won plenty of ma- well, maybe not plenty. But I get you have to go you have to go dig around for them mainly because you know I said he's not on TV all that much in that role. Mister Chopsticks says Boris Zukov did a very good Russian accent. I think he tried really hard at it. And it wasn't wasn't too bad. He's not as good on his, the singing as Volkov is. He gets a reply. Evil Ubuntu says you've never heard a Russian accent then. Volkov was a better pretend Russian despite being from Croatia. Well, he does have the advantage of geography there. Mr. Chopsticks replies, Volkov was better, but Zukov's wasn't bad, especially for a guy from Virginia. And then the last guy, Terminat1, is like, he, he just spells Zukov, like, because everybody else was spelling it incorrectly, so he decided to be that guy. But once again, I, I, I remind you, you, the character General Zukov from Death of Stalin, as played by Jason Isaacs, is so freaking amazing and so hilarious because he, he's a British guy doing a Yorkshire accent with this old Soviet general that when you really think about it, it's just absolutely absurd, but it, it, it truly does add to the movie. That'll do it for YouTube Comment Theater. I haven't decided on a show for next week, but what I might do is just scroll through the upcoming podcast private playlist that I have and just pick out whatever thumbnail annoys me the most just so I can get rid of it. I'll do, I'll do that once again. So, you know, it's totally up for grabs and I've seen a bunch of stuff go on to YouTube in the past week to 10 days that, you know, has, has some interest for me. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll probably announce it at some point before I come out with the show. I think this week I, I only put up the guy's screen cap, although I suppose I still could tweet it out between now and when the show actually drops. But I do have one final announcement. Cut the music. What I'd like to have right now is for all you very much in shape, good smelling, very nice listeners, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes and show the public that you've provided what is known as social proof. Hit the music. It's just method acting, but I had to run up and put my bathrobe on just so I could take it off, so I could do the full Rick Rude bit for there. 
Anyway, I'm going to leave you with one thought here. And it's something that I think about quite a bit. And I don't know if you do as well, but but please share share with me if you think about this out of the clear blue sky, like if you're taking a shower, taking a shit, or whatever. I, I mean, I think about this way too much. You ever notice that at WrestleMania 7 when Willie Nelson is singing God Bless America, he is wearing a children's intercontinental title belt? I think it's the intercontinental. It could be the world title. I don't remember exactly. It's a children's belt, and it fits around that man's waist. Willie Nelson is a national treasure on so many different levels. He smoked weed on the roof of the White House, for God's sakes. Anyway, I'm going to leave you with that. Thank you so much for listening. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. <laughs>